right. Good morning, guys. How's everyone doing? Uh, it is good to be with you this morning. Um, this morning is Freedom Sunday, and before we jump into what that means, I just have a couple announcements for us. So uh, next week, everybody say it with me, what is next week? Yeah, I should have unified that a little bit better, but that was good. Uh, it's the fall launch next week, and I'm pumped. I'm so excited. Uh, we've been running and racing towards this thing all summer long, working towards what we're going to be doing in the fall and into the next year and into this sort of next phase and season of Resonate. Um, and so there's a lot to unveil. This week, you'll be getting an email. There's going to be a new website. There's going to be a new logo. We're getting like a facelift. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it looks awesome. I'm super proud of what the strategy team has been doing uh, to create all this new stuff. Um, and then just beyond sort of the, the physical look stuff and everything, there's a lot of new changes that we're going to be implementing just in the way that we do church. Uh, and a lot of it comes down to this infographic we've been showing. Um, which shows that we are about arrows out and not about arrows in. So there's five arrows out. And while Sunday gatherings is one of those, it's not the most important. So we're trying to decenter what it means to be a part of a church community. And that means that you can join us, not just here on Sunday mornings, but you can join us through a podcast. Uh, we believe it's also a great uh, thing to get involved with mentors. And so we're sort of upping this mentorship program where we're linking seasoned people with unseasoned people. That means just like not just the faith stuff, but it also means business stuff, life stuff, just getting people together over coffee to have conversations and kind of pour into each other. Uh, and we also have small groups. If you're not in a small group, um, come talk to me or come talk to uh, Whitney. Uh, we're looking to try and start a new, oh, there's Whitney, start a new uh, small group somewhere closer to the 405. So if anybody has a place where they would like to host a small group. That's our main need right now, but um, we'd love to get, get another one going for the fall. And then finally, there's service. And this is huge, uh, and it's going to be a major part of what we do. And it means that like, when Resonate started, we actually started a global church. We started a church in Ecuador at the same time that we planted. So even just as a small little community, we've done some pretty cool stuff globally. Uh, and what I want to like, sort of rein us in on is locally. Like, How are we serving the very street that we're on. How are we being good news to crossroads across the street here? How are we being good news to local businesses, local parks, all that kind of stuff? We're going to try and really um, like bunker into this community and see what good there is to do. Um, so with all of that, I'm, I'm, just, I'm pumped for next week, and I'm pumped for you to see uh, what's in store. So be there. Bring some friends. Bring some family. Bring some strangers. I do not care. Just fill this place up. Amen? Cool. So Freedom Sunday. This is Freedom Sunday. What does that mean? Um, well, a little disclaimer right off the top. It's going to be a little heavier than most other Resonate Sundays, but it's something that is so desperately needed, and it's something that's so important for us as a church to be talking about. Um, some of you have sat on the flyers, or some of you saw the flyers, but this morning is all about um, engaging with this uh, organization called IGM. And IGM is International Justice Mission. And what they do is there are over 700 advocates and lawyers who are actively trying to get rid of this virus that is human trafficking, sex trafficking, and human slavery. And so this morning, we're going to jump into exactly uh, what that means and what that means for us as followers of Christ. But before we do that, I'd love to pray. So let's, let's pray together. God, um, I'm just so grateful uh, just to be able to, to engage with a different sort of story this morning. As we leap out of our, our, um, our new series about stories, we're leaping into a much, much heavier, grander, 
and uh, needed story here. And so I pray that um, just give us grace as we approach this topic. And uh, also just give us joy. There's hope in this. And that's the good news. So um, let's have a blast as we uh, engage with each other this morning. Amen. Um, so I was at a car wash a few weeks ago. And if you know, know anything about me or have seen my previous car, which was a 2003 CRV Mint, uh, it's not exactly clean any of the time or all the time. I'm not the type of person who cares about what car I drive or the way that that said car looks. So even now, like Chelsea and I got a new car, it's downright filthy. So we were like, we need to go and wash the car. So this was a big moment for me. I was putting on my big boy pants and I was like, let's go. Let's find a cheap and good car wash in Santa Monica. That proved to be a really difficult search because there are no cheap car washes in Santa Monica. Uh, so we found one. I went on Yelp and we found one with great reviews and the price looked okay. And it was in, um, it was in one of the parking structures for those big uh, office buildings on Colorado with all the tech companies and everything. So the idea is you're supposed to like, if you work there, go take your car, drop it off during the day, they'll wash it for you and then you come back. Um, but we were just gonna use this bad boy, just like, here we go. So we go into this parking garage and we find out that it's massive. So it's unbelievably confusing right out the gate. We can't figure out where the actual car wash is in it, so we're circling around. Uh, and, and then finally I see an attendant and I ask him and he tells me to go all the way to the bottom of this parking garage. So we circle down to the bottom of this parking garage and I find this cavernous car wash and it's like four dudes and they're, they're <clears throat> washing very nice cars and I come up to the kiosk and I'm like, hey, I, we just wanted to get a quick car wash and he informs me that there's no way that he could wash my car right now because they're all gonna go on lunch break, which was very confusing to me that an entire car wash would go on an hour long lunch break. That's good theologically, but that's not good when I need to get my car washed. So I, I leave and we're like, okay, we'll come back. So we leave, we get up to the exit and there's like four cars deep and we see that there's a guy at the little kiosk thing like helping people get it in because it looks like the machine might be broken or something. At this point we spent about 30 minutes in this parking garage and it's about as hot as it is today. So it was just not fun. Uh, and we're waiting there for the four other cars to go. We finally get to the front. The guy leaves as we're coming up, and I put the ticket in, and lo and behold, it's $18. So I was like, wait, this isn't fair. So there, there's an office off there. I leave the car uh, and go to the office, and I explain the situation. And the guy says, there's nothing I can do for you. It's an automated system. So even if I wanted to, like I couldn't click a button and open the arm for you. And then... It, Something in me clicked and snapped like it's never had before, and it's a sign that I'm getting older, because I remember my dad doing this in, like, at the bank, or like it, when bad customer service comes in the world. I call it like going dad at the bank. So something just flipped inside of me, and I was like, no, not gonna have it, and just freaked out on the poor soul who really had nothing to do with anything. He calls the car wash guy, and the car wash guy is not helpful at all because he's on a lunch break. So. They're like, you're gonna have to go down, I'm really sorry about this, you're gonna have to go down back to the car wash and get them to validate this ticket. And I was like, what the heck? So I go back down, no one is at the car wash, and I, I yeah, they're on lunch break, I muster up the courage to go into the office, because the door is shut and it appears to be locked. I knock, no one answers, but I'm, again, dad rage here. So I like get super fired up and I open the door, and it is the weirdest scene. I've ever, there's like cigarettes everywhere. They're all drinking beer and they're watching like a, like a game show and they're all eating weird food that smells really funny. 
And I have to explain to the guy, like, hey, I, I just had the worst experience up there. I had to come back down here to get this ticket, blah, blah, blah. Finally, he validates the ticket, even though he couldn't really, he wasn't getting what I was saying. Validates the ticket. We get out, and we're scot-free, and I will never return to that car wash ever again. But here's the crazy thing. This morning, what we're talking about, the scale of what we're talking about is so, so, so much bigger than that $18 parking ticket. And yet, I was so physically enraged at the thought of having to pay $18 for a parking ticket. I'm in a car. It's like this total check your privilege moment. In a car, like getting it washed, like all of that kind of stuff. And this morning, the stuff that we're talking about is so much bigger, and yet I don't get enraged or mad about that hardly ever. And I, I don't think it's the fact that I'm not empathetic and I don't want to um, think about this stuff and help in this way. I think as followers of Jesus, we're totally called to do that. But I think the actual problem when you break it down is that I'm not faced with this problem, with this issue of slavery that's just so massive. I'm not actually faced with the problem. I don't have to reckon with it on a daily basis. Because there's this moment, and we all have it, we have the dad of the bank moment where if something goes really terribly wrong, we, we get mad enough to do something. Or we get righteous enough to do something, right? But we live in a world where it's so easy to distract ourselves from the bigger problems. The device we carry in our pocket is a constant distraction away from the heart. I can watch a zillion different videos to make me feel better while avoiding the one that I probably should be like, I need to engage with this issue. I need to actually talk and think this through. We live in constant distraction where we really don't have to face it. And so this morning, we're going to do sort of the hard work of, of facing a really crazy reality, a reality that there are more people enslaved today than there have been in any other point in history. And we're going to engage with that sad reality, but we're also going to say that there is hope. So while this, we're going to be talking about some pretty heavy stuff, we have to focus on the fact that there is hope and that there is a real way to change this problem. And that is such good news. Um, let's watch this. We're going to watch a, uh, a video. And, um, and it's about a kid named Kumar. And before we do that, I want, to, I want to talk about a big story in the Bible that has to do with uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. And that's the story of Exodus. Exodus is this uh, book of the Bible that's actually, scholars believe it was the first book that was ever written. So even though Genesis comes first in our Bibles, Exodus is actually the start of the Jewish story. So Genesis is this poem, and we've been going through Genesis the last two weeks. It's a poem to explain how this great nation started and what it took to get them like, in slavery. So it's a book that explains this is how Israel came to be, this is how Israel came to be enslaved, right? That's, that's the poetic narrative of Genesis. And then when we get to Exodus, the storytelling kind of flips. It's not as poetic anymore. It's more like narrative. It's more um, explanatory. It's, it's a story that's now being told with characters and real events and stuff that we can look at. Um, and so it becomes real more like bare bones and like here's what God did to uh, save this nation. So um, the story of Exodus is centered around this dude named Moses. And Moses is the, is the key figure in all of the Jewish literature. This is the guy to look at. It's believed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, 
Uh, and it's believed that he's the one who's like writing all of this stuff down when it comes to Genesis, Exodus, uh, and so forth. And Moses was a man who was born into slavery and then into privilege. So he's got this crazy story where uh, in the Bible, Israel's enslaved, Egypt is the nation that has enslaved Israel, and the Jewish people are getting a little bit too big. So there's a problem. Pharaoh goes, uh-oh, like they're overpopulating, and they're going to become so big that we're not going to be able to control them anymore. So it's an idea of like power, trying to oppress others so they can keep their power. So they do this really dark and awful thing where they say, find every Jewish male child or baby, and from now on, like, they're, they're going to be executed as soon as they're born. We're going to get rid of the overpopulation problem by cutting it off right at the source. And so Moses' mother catches wind of this plan and does this crazy thing where she pushes her baby down the river in a basket and floats it away. And at first that seems like maybe she's just taking better odds that the baby won't die that way or like he'll grow up in the wild. But the intentionality there is, is leaning into faith that God is going to do something. So she sends Moses off into the river and lo and behold, Pharaoh's wife finds Moses in this basket and decides to raise this child as her own. And so Moses starts as a slave and ends up this really privileged guy in high society. He would have been educated the same way as all of Pharaoh's sons. Uh, he would have had access to all of that money, all of that wisdom, all of that power. But he has this identity crisis because he's still a Jewish person and he knows that. So, like, Moses gr grows up in this great tension that's like, I'm here and I've got all this stuff, and yet I know that I'm a part of a people who are being oppressed. And I know that something terrible is going on. Like, my people are slaves, and I'm here in this palace hanging out. And so there's this, there's this identity crisis for Moses, and it results in this culminating moment where Moses sees uh, a guard whipping one of his Jewish brothers and sisters, and Moses has a dad at the bank moment and flips and actually kills that guard. So, check this out. Uh, it is written nowhere that Moses is like this big, strong action hero guy. In fact, most of the stuff that's written about Moses claims that he was actually kind of like a very humble, meek person. He wasn't good at public speaking. He was, he was like a guy who would stutter over his words. He was like, it, it, everything points to sort of a, a meager person. So for him to overcome this guard and actually murder him, the guard would have known, oh, this is the Pharaoh's son, essentially. I can't fight back. So I have to just take this. And if I fight back, I'll be killed anyway. So I have to just die here. So we see Moses using his power in a violent manner. It was power that was misused and mistreated, and he knew that, like, I can get away with this. I can, I can, this righteous anger that's welled up inside me, I can do something about it, and violence is the answer. And immediately, from the text, we can see that he regrets it because he hides the body, and then he flees. So in that moment, all of Moses' wealth and promise for the rest of his life is like a flash, it's gone. He knows, like, I can only push this so far. I'm still a Jewish person. I'm still one of these people. And if they find out that I've killed this Egyptian guard, like, my privilege only lasts so long. So he runs, and he flees, and he goes out into the desert, and he lives this farmer's life for decades until 
One day he's out there, just minding his business, walking along, and a burning bush appears. This bush that's like in flame, but it's not burning up. And he takes the time and he turns to look at it, and in, in, and in that process, he meets God. So that's a great symbol, a beautiful symbol of like there's this eternal fire that's going, and Moses chooses to turn, probably an email, chooses to turn and actually face what's going on. So he's in a point in his life where he can turn to that burning bush and go, I'm ready to hear it. And he encounters a power for the first time that can actually do something about it. He encounters this righteous love of God, and God basically tells him, I'm going to use you to free all of those people. But you're not going to do it with violence, and you're not going to do it in the ways that you thought you should. You're going to do it through my power. And so the story of the Bible unfolds like this. Time and time again, we see this broken individual used to do something great. And it forces them to rely on this higher power, this God. And so for our, our discussion this morning around the issues of, of slavery and human trafficking and sex trafficking, we have to recognize that there is a power out there that is bigger than us that is at work to free these people. This is not on us. It's through us, right? Um, let's watch this video uh, about Kumar. You're working 14, 18 hour days with very little sleep, no freedom, Dignity is taken away from them, and, and that's something nobody should have to endure. We had a number of years ago, two of the bond laborers escaped from a facility. And they were tracked down by the owners of the facility and, and brought back. And as a punishment for what they had done, their hands were chopped off. We would go to the government officers and we'd say, sir, there is a bonded labor case. And almost always the response was, there is no bonded labor in my area. What are you talking? How much? 30? Yeah, yeah, let's pay. there's a girl who's very afraid. Almost unable to walk. This is Kumar. He was abandoned by his mother and his father was suddenly killed. Orphaned and alone, he was accountable for his parents' debts. And at just seven years old, he was forced into slavery. Kumar remembers a day where he was so ill he couldn't get out of bed. Immediately, his owner came looking for him. Kumar was trapped by debt and a slave owner who beat him continuously. He, like so many, had no remaining hope for a way out. 
right, so, I mean, it's, it, this is a terrible, terrible reality, right? That this exists, and it's hard to see. Um, and like I said at the beginning, like, we're, we're doing the hard work this morning of facing this problem. But the good news is that the story of Exodus and this story are, are linked. The terrible reality of slavery is that it seems to be this virus that the human condition somehow links to. Uh, why is it that in history we go through bouts of this and it rears its ugly head like it's this terrible thing that keeps popping up, right? And once it pops up, it's so hard uh, to kill. There's some quick stats. There are currently 45 million people who are living in slavery today. 45 million. And to give you a quantifier, I looked this up, the entire nation of Australia has 23 million point one three. That's, that's nearly double the size of the, like, the population of the continent that brought us Steve Irwin. Um, it, and Violet. And, and Violet. Um, it's, it's easy to look at a number like 45 million and just get like, disturbingly overwhelmed. Like, what can we possibly, possibly do? And it's, it's easy to believe the lie that this is too much for us to handle, but let's go back to that Exodus story. So God sends Moses. God sends hope. And this tiny nation of slaves is somehow freed from captivity under the most powerful armed nation at the time. How does that work? You have Egypt and you have Israel. Israel is this little blip on the screen and Egypt is the superpower. We're talking about the, the best, most armed nation on the planet. How did these slaves possibly band together and free themselves from the bondage of slavery against the most powerful nation on the planet? the most powerful force at the time. How did they do it? See, it wasn't humanly possible for Israel to get out of Egypt, and it's not humanly possible to get these slaves out of slavery. We have to lean into the fact that God desires justice and that God is going to come through. And there's this other really beautiful story in the Bible. It's one that I resonate with very deeply because uh, it's the center of our Christian faith. Uh, the Jewish people once again find themselves uh, oppressed. Not in the same way as slavery, but this Roman government comes along and once again there's this superpower, this overarching thing that's taxing them heavily and they're not truly free. And even more than that, this is a, this is a religious moment in which rules and regulations and, and all of that became the context for religion and not, like, not love and grace. And so God looks at his people again and he says, I've got to do something. So in the Exodus story, God looks at the oppression of the Israelites, and he says, I'm going to intervene, and he sends a man. And then in this story, God sees the sort of oppression of the heart and the state of humanity, and God becomes the man. So we can see how the ante is upped, that his care is upped. This is how Jesus comes to declare his ministry in Luke 4, 18 through 21. This is what he's all about. And it's easy for us to get wrapped up in the personal salvation stuff and like the five steps to change my life stuff that Jesus offers. But when Jesus is actually asked what you're here to do, when he proclaims, here's what I'm all about, it's, it's pretty distinct and it's pretty to the point. Here's, here's what he says in Luke 4, 18 through 21. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach the good news to the poor to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of, the, of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, 
and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him, and he began to explain to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled just as you have heard it. So I want to paint the scene a little bit. Let's step into that story. This is Jesus in a synagogue, and he would have had one of those fancy scroll deals, and he's reading from the scroll, but he picks this really peculiar and, and, and particular packet, uh, passage. He picks this out of Isaiah. This is the prophet's Isaiah words, and what he's saying is proclaiming the coming of this Messiah, this person who's going to set everything right, who's come to save us all. This is God incarnate. And basically what Jesus is proclaiming is some pretty bold stuff. Not only is he saying, I'm that guy, but he's saying, this is what I'm here to do. And then he does what could only be described as the most bad-A moment in all the New Testament, where he just sort of rolls up the scroll, hands it back down, sits down calmly. Like, it's a, he's just dropped a theological hand grenade in the room, and then he just sits down very patiently and goes, what do you want to do with that? <laughs> this ends up getting him kicked out of this town, by the way, and he has to flee. So that's, that's an interesting like, little side note that's not calm and cool forever. Jesus came in very real terms to end oppression, not just through the cross, but in real and physical ways. He's saying, God is here to take on pain and injustice. In other words, I'm here to literally save, just as I am here to spiritually save. And we miss that sometimes because we assume Jesus' care is just for our soul, and we need to understand that if the soul exists in the here and now, that God cares about it. And he does not stand for slavery, and he does not stand for trafficking. He stands in direct opposition to those things. So like I said before, we have Moses sent by God. We have God, we have God sent by Jesus. Jesus sent by God. Let's get into the Trinity. Let's get all that in there. And then now we have a moment where we have Jesus sending us. The church comes into this picture. The church is a direct response to the love and the compassion of Jesus. And that's good news, and that, 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 there's hope in that. So let's watch the second part of this video so we can see how Kamar's story ends. IJM discovered the horrific conditions in the brick factory where Kumar and others were being forced to work against their will. And, based on their undercover video evidence, local government authorities and police came alongside IJM to conduct a rescue operation. The more and more we are doing these rescues, people are getting aware that people are being abused, there is bonded labor, there is trafficking. Also, the law is going to take its course as well as perpetrators go behind. When the team arrived in the morning and entered the brick factory, 15 men, women, and children were rescued and given their freedom back. Then, they were each given a certificate to prove that they no longer owe any debts to their former owner. for Kumar. After being rescued, 
IJM placed Kumar in their aftercare program to heal. You'd ask him a question anytime, no matter what, and he would say, the one thing I want to do is, is I want to study. He was clear about that. And then they enrolled him in school for the first time. Today, he is studying to be a social worker to help those still suffering like he did. And what we do at IJM is we go look for that lost sheep, that girl that's being abused, that widow who's been run out of her home. And we will search for her until we find her. That's how our Father has loved us. That's how we are called to love others. Not to search for them until we've satisfied ourselves. Not to search for them until it gets really hard. But to go after them until we find them. To be relentless in our love. Isn't that incredible? I mean, there's hope. There's actual hope. Like, to an unbelievable problem, there's unbelievable hope. I mentioned earlier that, like, slavery is a lot like a virus, and it's, it's very hard to get rid of, and it keeps, like, popping up in our, in our culture and in our history and all that kind of stuff. Um, Jesus talked a lot about this, uh, this thing called the kingdom. And in our, our series of story, we're, we're seeing, or we will see, on how he used to describe this kingdom very like loftily and poetically because the literal language didn't really do it justice. So whenever he was asked about the kingdom, he would come up with these, these really crazy like metaphors and stories about what the kingdom looks like. And one of the weirdest ways that he describes the kingdom is like this, and it's in Mark 4, uh, 31 through 32. It says, consider a mustard seed. When scattered on the ground, it's the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, but when it's planted, it grows and it becomes the largest of all vegetable plants. It produces such large branches that the birds of the sky are able to nest in its shade. So why the heck did he say that? I'm always fascinated when a specific comes up in what Jesus is talking about. Why mustard? So if we break this passage down, first of all, a mustard seed is not actually the tiniest seed an orchard seed is, so there's your nerdy fact for the day. And that's not a bash on Jesus's like, agricultural knowledge. All that is is that we're not supposed to be reading this literally. So let's look deeper. He said mustard seed. Yes, it's a tiny seed, okay? It's really small, so he gets that point in there. But why mustard? Is mustard like a big thing in that culture? Like, were people eating mustard all the time? I don't think so. So I looked it up. So mustard is a plant that basically if you ask any farmer or agricultural expert or Google, it will tell you that if you're planting mustard, you're pretty much just planting mustard. Like there is no way you can plant anything else in the garden when you plant mustard because it is this weed and it just takes everything over. So a lot of times when we read this passage, we, we think it's, it's something that starts small 
and then something that just grows to this really big thing, when the actual beautiful reality of this is that this is like a virus, this kingdom. It is like a weed. It is something that we cannot get rid of. In fact, when we plant it, it chokes out everything else in the garden and leaves no room for any other viruses or weird stuff. It's just the mustard. The kingdom of God is as good as a fine mustard. <laughs> no, the kingdom of God <laughs> is that powerful. And I think as we, as we think about the issue of slavery and we think about what we can do, we have to remember we have that kind of power on our side. That all it takes is a small, small little thing. But if we plant it, and we plant it enough, it's going to grow and it's going to take over. And the kingdom isn't like just church on Sunday. The kingdom is just straight up good news and it's good news all over the place. It means oppression gone. It means slavery ended. It means hurt, racism, all of that stuff gone. Because in the kingdom, you can't plant anything else. So this morning, we've partnered with IJM, and this is, this is their Freedom Sunday. So we're essentially hosting this event for them, um, and we're just a filter for what they're actually doing. This is a big deal for me because you'll find that I don't often uh, like, like promote Christian companies. <laughs> IJM is unbelievable at what they do. Let me read. I, they sent this in their little packet. This is what they did. And uh, does anybody know if this is Kibu or Cebu, Philippines? Anybody? Cebu. Cebu. All right. Cebu. Um, IGM did a project in the city of Cebu in the Philippines to combat sex trafficking of minors. After five years of comprehensively working with all stakeholders in the public justice system, independent auditors confirmed a 79% reduction in the number of minors in the sex industry. This is massive. And this Filipino government then decided to scale the strategy to several other metropolitan areas. And by the grace of God, in the span of just a decade or two, we may see the near eradication of sex trafficking of minors in the Philippines. That's, that's pretty good. And, and they're doing this all over. Uh, I've had friends who've worked for IGM. My sister worked for IGM for a time. This is like the real deal, and they're doing the heavy lifting. But here's the thing. As the local church, we need to help them do the heavy lifting by supporting them. And so what I want to ask you to engage with this morning is we're going to have this generosity table here. And this is our new uh, method of giving here at Resonate. So if you want to do that in a symbolic way, the generosity table is where you can drop in your tithe, your offering. We'll also have an iPad set up so you can do that um, digitally or through your online giving as well. But um, for today, I want to ask you to consider being a freedom partner. That's what they call it. And what a freedom partner is, is it's $24 a month, and you commit to pray, and then you commit to actually being a part of the solution. It's a pretty cool deal, and it's a powerful, powerful thing to engage with. So um, I pray that you'll consider doing that. Uh, we're going to have a time of communion. So we're going to come to the table, and uh, we have gluten-free options available. Boom. That's behind the challah. We hide it. Oh, no, it's in front now. Um, so rip off a giant piece of this challah and dip it into the communion uh, wine, which is Welch's grape juice. And then uh, you can come over here to the generosity table and you can be generous. Like as followers of Christ, we're called into generous living, and especially uh, tithing and giving to our worship community. So you can do that here. And then also you can consider becoming a freedom partner. There are these packets here uh, that you can look into, get all the information, sign up. 
Uh, you can also do it directly on your phone. So if you have your phone or if you don't want to come to the generosity table, uh, you can look up IGM online and it's a really simple process to do that. And then finally, this table over here is the care table. So we decided to take an intentional step into care for our community. We want to know how we can be praying for you. Uh, we want to know if we can pray with you. And then also, we need to know things like if, hey, I can't, I can't do rent this month. Like, or so-and-so is in the hospital, or you know, all of this kind of stuff we want to know so that we can actually be in community and in life with everyone. Um, and being able to engage the local church in that is the power of the local church. Guys, I'm, I'm so, so excited for Resonate in general because this is a community in which we've taken the humble stance of we're a church for people that don't have it figured out because we don't either. And that is a humble, authentic stance in a community that needs some of that authenticity real, real, real bad. And so as we come to the table and we engage in communion, I want us to remember that we're all figuring it out together. And then as you go to the generosity table, remember we're all figuring it out together. And the care table, remember we're all figuring it out together. And more importantly, we're all in this together. Amen?